There's a rumor going around, around YouTube and on the internet that says that the rapture is going to happen sooner than we thought. We thought that it was going to be put off for a while, but they're saying now that no, it's going to happen sooner, not later, and that the tares in the parable of the tares in the wheat will be burned later. They'll be, they'll be um, uh, bundled, yes, and put away so they can be burnt later or, or not even moved, just left in the field. And then the wheat will be gathered around these bundles. But is that what the Bible says? Will the tares be burnt later? This is Albert Hardy for Bible Prophecy Radio. I don't quite understand why they would even say such things. Because it's not the way it's written. So let's take a look at that. We'll start where else, but in Matthew 24. But we're not going to stay there very long. I want to just show you some things here. So here we go. Let's start in verse 14. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will come and hear it. Then the end will come. Actually, it says, so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the religious object that, ca uh, that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Now, where do you think that holy place is, first of all, and what's this desecration? And the sacrilegious object that is this trigger event that starts World War III is the way I call it. Well, you know, the Alaska Mosque is sitting right over the threshing floor of Aranya, the Jebusite, where David built the temple. Now, that's the way I understand it. And also, it happens to be the same exact spot where Abraham offered Isaac, but didn't kill him. Instead, the angel stopped his hand from killing his son Isaac, and received him back safe and sound again. And instead, God provided the ram that was caught in the thicket, and they sacrificed that. God will provide. That's what Abraham said in faith, knowing that God would be able to provide the lamb. And that's exactly what happened. He substituted his own son, in spite of that fact, he provided a lamb, a ram, actually. So there's a lesson for us there. Jesus himself was offered and became that sacrificial lamb. Thank God we have a Savior. So in verse 15, the day is coming when you will see what the what Daniel the prophet spoke about, this desecration, this sacrilegious object that causes um, desecration, standing in the holy place. Now, is this the temple of God? 
Will the Alaska Mosque be wiped off and a temple built over that site? But he continues in verse 16, Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not even return to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Why? For there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began. And in fact, it will never be so great again. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive. But it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. Now let's stop right there for the moment and flip over to Mark chapter 13. Here's the way Mark 13 and verse 14 and onwards reads. The day is coming when you will see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing where it should not be. That's a different way of putting it. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight be not in winter, for there will be greater anguish in those days than at any time since God created the world. And it will never be so great again. And get this, in fact, unless the Lord shortens that time of calamity, not a single person will survive. But for the elect's sake, the, but for the sake of his chosen ones, he has shortened the days, or those days. I don't want to keep reading here in Mark 13, verse 21. Then if anyone tells you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders so as to deceive, or if possible, even God's chosen ones. Now, who are God's chosen ones? Well, they are the wheat in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Let's take a look at that parable for a moment. It's found in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24. Here is another story, a story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night, as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat and then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce fruit, the weeds also grew. The farmers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted good, that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked. No, he replied, you'll uproot the weed if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest, and then I will tell the harvesters, 
to sort out the weeds and tie them into bundles. Notice they're out of the field. Sort out. And uh, bind them or tie them into bundles and burn them and put the wheat into my barn. Now let's drop down in Matthew 13 to verse 36. Then leaving the crowds outside, Jesus went into the house. His disciples said, Please explain to us the story of the weeds in the field. Jesus replied, The Son of Man is the farmer who plants the good seed. The field is the world, and the good seed represents the people of the kingdom, that is, his chosen ones. The weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. The enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the harvesters are the angels. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned up in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. Okay, so the weeds are sorted out and burned. There's no mention of gathering wheat yet. The one who planted the wheat, yes, it's been planted and it's grown and it gets sorted out. Well, no, the weeds are sorted out and burned up in the fire. So it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will remove, that is, they will move them away from where they are now in the field. They will remove them from his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then what happens? Verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom or in their father's kingdom. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand, Jesus says. Unquote. Now, if if Jesus got this wrong, first of all, that would be absurd. But he would have said something more like this. The weeds will be stored somewhere else or even in the field to be burnt later. Now then, go gather them together. What are you going to do? Hope that the seeds all fell into clusters where people could uh, just wind them up with a rope and bind them into a bundle to be burnt later on? No, they have to be selected. Now, why would a farmer select them to get them out of the field? Well, because it's too hard to sort the seeds once they are already harvested, uh, harvested and threshed. That is, removed the holes and the chaff and the, the uh, stalks and all of that. But the weeds can be plucked off because they're taller or they're green. They're still green while the wheat is already ripened. So they're easy to see. They're still green while the wheat is now wheat color. You know, it's kind of a light brown. So 
they can be sorted out and removed. That's what he says right here. They will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. In other words, the tares, the seeds of the tares. So it's not that the other way around is real. In other words, they're going to um, take the wheat away first. No, they gather the tares first. So why did Jesus flip-flop it if it's truly flip-flopped? I'm here to say, no, I don't think he got it wrong. Let's flip back to Isaiah chapter 13. And we'll read there a little bit and find other scriptures that we need to see. This is a message about wicked Babylon who uh, was in the area of Iraq and uh, parts of Syria and Turkey and all over that area. But they were wicked men. And here's what God says in verse 9 through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 13. For see, the day of the Lord is coming, the terrible day of his fury and fierce anger. The land will be made desolate and all the sinners destroyed with it. The heavens will be black above them. The stars will give no light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will provide no light. I, the Lord, will punish the world for its evil. See, it's talking about the world, not just Babylon. And the wicked for their sin. That's verse 11, chapter 13, Isaiah. I will crush the arrogance of the proud and humble the pride of the mighty. I will make people scarcer than gold, more rare than the fine gold of Ophir, which was famous for its very uh, dense concentrations of gold. Verse 13, For I will shake the heavens, and the earth will move from its place when the Lord of heaven's armies displays his wrath on the, fierce, or the day of his fierce anger. This matches perfectly Matthew 24 and verse 29 and also several other scriptures. But why? Why will the heavens be black? You know, let's say all the vegetation on earth turned so dry that it could catch fire. And, and, it, and it caught fire, let's say, and the whole earth was burned, would that cause the, the atmosphere of the earth to turn black so that the sun would be black above them and the heavens would be so dark they would disappear? You couldn't see the moon or the stars? No, I don't think it would. It might turn it brown or gray, I don't know, but it wouldn't turn it black, not completely black. What on earth could do that? Let's flip back to Revelation 9 and verse 2 one more time. I flip there a lot because people don't seem to get it. They don't seem to understand 
especially prophecy teachers, don't seem to go there. I don't really understand why not. This is significant. It's powerful. Verse 1, chapter 9 of Revelation says, Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen, had fallen. You notice that? I didn't think there was a word in the Greek for had, but maybe there is. Had fallen to earth from the sky, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Hmm. Okay. When he opened it, now a bottomless pit might be something fairly substantial. Might be pretty big. A bottomless pit is pretty deep. When he opened it, smoke poured out as though from a huge furnace, and the sunlight and air turned dark from the smoke. Now, what do you make of that? Well, let's just see what another reference would be in Isaiah 34. And I've turned to this many times because it is so important that we get this. In order for you to not be afraid of the future that we have uh, sort of set in stone, you might say, because it's in the scriptures so very often. Well, here's what it says. Verse 4 of chapter 34 of Isaiah says, The heavens above will melt away. That's interesting. Melt away. They will disappear like a rolled-up scroll. When you roll a scroll up, you can't read what's written on it, obviously. So it disappears. The words disappear. So eventually, the smoke that comes out of this pit will darken the whole sky. The stars will fall from the sky like withered leaves from a grapevine, verse 4, continuing, or shriveled figs from a fig tree, which matches perfectly Matthew 24, 29, and lots of other scriptures. And when my sword has finished its work in the heavens, it will fall on Edom, the nation I have marked for destruction. Now, who is Edom? The Edomites settled in Mount Seir. Mount Seir is in, if I'm not mistaken, it's in Saudi Arabia someplace, or possibly in Iraq. But it's in the Middle East, no doubt. The nation I've marked for destruction, then, is Edom. So if we can just Google that and find out where it is, we'll know where it is to this day. So let's just do that. Okay, uh, Google, where is Edom? According to Britannica, Edom, ancient land bordering ancient Israel, in what is now southwestern Jordan, between the Dead Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba. Thank you, Google. So you know where it is now. It's in southwestern Jordan which is right between Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Dropping down to uh, verse 8, we read these words. This is still chapter 34 of Isaiah. For it is the day of the Lord's revenge, 
the year when Edom will be paid back for all it did to Israel. What did it do to Israel? Though they were brothers, they turned their backs on them and allowed them to be slaughtered when they were coming out of Egypt, and they didn't care. So this, is, this did not sit well with God at all. Dropping down to verse 9, the streets, or I'm sorry, the streams, that is the waterways of Edom, will be filled with burning pitch, and the ground will be covered with fire. This is just what we saw in Revelation 9 and verse 2, when they opened the pit. This judgment on Edom will never end. The smoke of its burning, and that can also mean its reputation or fame. The, this judgment on Edom will never end. The smoke of its burning will rise forever. The land will lie deserted from generation to generation, and no one will live there anymore. Wow. Okay, let's go to Ezekiel 32, verses 7 and 8, and see what that says. When I blot you out, and this is talking to and about the Pharaoh king of Egypt, I will veil the heavens and darken the stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give you its light. I will darken uh, the bright stars overhead and cover your land in darkness. See, that's all part of that same region in the Middle East. I, the Sovereign Lord, have spoken. I will disturb many hearts when I bring news of your downfall to distant nations you've never even heard of. Yes, I will shock many lands and their kings will be terrified at your fate. They will shudder in fear for their own lives as I brandish my sword before them on the day of your fall. Now let's flip back to Joel chapter 2. Verse 1, Sound the alarm in Jerusalem, raise the battle cry on my holy mountain. That would be right there in Jerusalem. And let everyone tremble in fear, because the day of the Lord is upon us. It is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of thick clouds and deep blackness. There you go. Suddenly, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a great and mighty army appears. Nothing like it has ever been seen before or will ever be seen again. Fire burns in front of them and flames follow after them. Ahead of them, the land that lies as beautiful as the Garden of Eden. Behind them is nothing left but desolation. Not one thing escapes. Dropping down to verse 10, the earth quakes as they advance. The heavens tremble and the sun and moon grow dark and the stars no longer shine. The Lord is at the head of the column. He leads them with a shout. This is his army and they follow his orders. The day of the Lord is an awesome and terrible thing. Who can survive, possibly survive? Turn to me now. That's why the Lord says, Turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting and weeping and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in grief. Tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, 
slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. I would rather have his unfailing love, not his wrath on me, that's for sure. But in chapter 2, verse 28, Then, after doing all those things, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. In those days I will pour out my Spirit on, um, even on servants, men and women alike. I will cause wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. Now, it, many of you may remember the Gulf War and the oil fields that Saddam Hussein and his henchmen set blowing up oil wells, some 900 of them. Can you imagine? But these are small little wells, about 12 inches in diameter, maybe 16. And they were deep, but they didn't have to be. The wells over there, the water, the oil is 25 feet down or less. Some, uh, in some areas, it's actually on top of the ground forming pools, which when set on fire have an endless fuel supply. And I've said this many times before. It's because the earth itself makes the oil way down from the methane core of the earth. And as it passes through the land trying to relieve the pressure, it picks up hydrogen molecules when it passes through an underground body of water and... As if it passes through coal, it picks up a carbon molecule. And when it cools, this whole mess, this methyl carbon hydrogen mix, is oil. And that's what will be set on fire. And that's why the sun and the moon will become dark. First, it'll turn blood red. So that's what it says here in verse 30. I will cause wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. We had those columns of smoke back in the Gulf War. But they were put out by Red Adair and his people that knew how to take them out. But it took them about a whole year to get that accomplished, at least several months. But then... In verse 31, the sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. Now that also matches Matthew 24, verse 29. Well, what about Isaiah chapter 24? Looks like we're going to have to end the discussion about it there, but we can clearly see that before Jesus comes and rescues the people that are his, his chosen ones, the fire burns first. Chapter 24 of Isaiah reads like this, Look, the Lord is about to destroy the earth and make make it a vast wasteland. He devastates the surface of the earth, scatters the people, the priests and lay people alike, and then it mentions servants and masters, maids and mistresses, buyers and sellers, lenders and borrowers, bankers and debtors. None will be spared. Doesn't matter how much money you've got. The earth will be completely emptied and looted. 
the Lord has spoken. The earth mourns and dries up. The crops waste away and wither. Even the greatest people on earth waste away. The earth suffers for the sins of its people, and they have twisted God's instructions and violated his laws and broken his everlasting covenant. They are destroyed by fire, and only a few are left. Isn't that what we read in Matthew 24 and about verse 21? Let's just see. Matthew 24, verse 21. For there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began, and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive. But it will be shortened by the Lord, by the way. For the sake of God's chosen ones, and I'm hoping that's you and me. And that's when, in verse 31, and this is after the darkening of the sun and the moon and the stars and the powers of the heavens are shaken. Verse 31 says, And he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. So you can clearly see that this rescue, this rapture, this gathering of the wheat happens after the fire. After the fire. That's the point I wanted to make in this podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Albert Hardy for Bible Prophecy Radio. You can go to my website, itellwhy.com, and you can read my eight books there. You can see many video links that will build your faith. And we can hope and trust and, and put our faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our soon-coming King. And that's the point. Follow Him, and you will be successful. Stay close. That's the idea. Every single day, pray and study the Word of God and see whether these things are so. I'm Albert Hardy for Bible Prophecy Radio. Have a great day.